Welcome to Felony Miami, where we have real conversations with real people about the criminal justice system right here in America. Private prisons are the scourge of civilization. The food is awful, the water tastes like it came from a gutter in Flint, Michigan, and sending an email cost more than a Rolls-Royce lease payment. It took Americans from 1776 till 1986 to lock up its first one million fellow citizens. Some needed to be put away, that's for sure. But from 1986 till 2006, it locked up another 1.5 million, giving the USA the number one spot for the most citizens caged. Everything about prison equals misery, and some say it should be. But private prisons take the cake, and the corruption there is at a whole other level. Private prison lobbyists play American politicians like cheap fiddles. And that's why our country has the highest incarceration rate in the world. The fake news is complicit, and the real news has such low standards for the truth that what really is going on on the front page is never what's really going on on the front page. Thanks to greed and false intentions and we-don't-care attitude, nowadays modern slavery is perpetuated via a simple campaign contribution to both sides. And where there isn't justice for one, there isn't justice for all. Welcome to Felony Miami. Let's air it out. Hello and welcome back to Felony Miami. I'm your host, Joe Stone. And on today's program, we have three guests. To my right, we have Christy Figueroa Contreras, Florida Bar Board Certified Specialist in Immigration and national Nationality Law. Florida and federal criminal trial attorney representing clients in all 50 states. Wow. And worldwide. Uh, attorney Christy Figueroa practices exclusively in all aspects of U.S. immigration, nationality, and what is this? Consul Counselor, Counselor law? law? What's yeah. that? Consular law, consulates. Oh, it's with consulates, mm -hmm. really? U.S. embassies and consulates, oh, wow. right? Okay. <laughs> See, we're taking felony Miami to another level, people. <laughs> this is where we're at. And the criminal defense of persons accused of a wide range of Florida and federal felonies and misdemeanor offenses. Wow, that's a mouthful. Uh, her criminal child experience makes her particularly well-versed in the complex and ever-changing interplay between criminal law and immigration law and procedures. Wow, and that's a hot topic right now, so I definitely want to get your opinion on some of those things. Directly across from me is Mr. Paul Wright. Paul Wright is the founder and executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center. He is also editor of Prison Legal News, the PLN, the longest-running independent prisoner rights publication in the United States. Uh, his articles have appeared in over 80 publications, ranging from The Counterpunch to USA Today. Uh, former prisoner, Paul was 
imprisoned for 17 years in Washington State until his release in 2003. During and since his incarceration, he has successfully litigated a wide variety of censorship and public records cases against prison systems around the country, both as a pro se plaintiff and on behalf of PLM. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, pro se plaintiff means on your own, right? Right. Representing Rep yourself. Representing yourself. Okay. And to my left, Jerry Ionelli. Jerry Ionelli is Miami is a Miami New Times daily reporter. Uh, he earned his master's degree in journalism from Columbia University. Told you we're taking things to another level here. He moved to South Florida in 2015, and he covers civil rights and political corruption across South Florida. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. That's a nice panel of guests we have today. So um, before the show, we were, we were starting to talk about some uh, immigration stuff and, and different laws, and, and, and Christy was going off on some stuff, and I was like, stop! We want to hear your story uh, when we get on the air. So uh, I, want to, I want to let you uh, jump into that story, and then I have questions for everybody. But I want to let you tell us uh, what, what's going on. Well, we were talking about different treatment that certain people get from police officers. And the other day, I was parked late at night in a kind of sketchy area in downtown Miami. So I you know, got in my car and left. And I hadn't noticed, but my license plate was stolen. So I got pulled over by, you know, I was driving through Little Havana. I got pulled over by a city of Miami police officer. He's like, hey, where's your license plate? I'm like, what are you talking about? I got out of my car, no problem. Like, I don't know what happened to it. Officer did not even ask me for my driver's license. Okay, well, for Paleto, no, I'm a very fair-skinned Hispanic woman. She's a okay? white girl. White girl. <laughs> and um, didn't even ask me for my driver's license, let me go. Drove, you know, about a mile up the road, got pulled over a second time. Officer number two, same thing. Hey, what's up? Making jokes with me. Did not ask me for my driver's license. Let me go. Uh, finally, I'm out, you know, Coral Gables, got pulled over a third time. <laughs> and uh, I was just so sick of not getting asked for my driver's license. I pulled out my driver's license and I said, hey. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they let me go home. And I say, you know, had I uh, been a darker a shade of skin, I know that my treatment would not have been the same. Yeah, I and think the com I, I guess the conversation that was white privilege, right? I, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Yeah, 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 it exists. Uh, yeah, so. no question, no question mm -hmm. about it. I want to get into some of the um, uh, 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 stuff that's going on with families being detained, and I know you know a, a bit about that. But I, I, I want to jump real quick into something that's been a burning issue for me and for the listeners of this program, and I want to ask this f uh, from you, Paul. Uh, private prisons, fundamentally just seems wrong. Yeah, and it is. And it's, what's funny, though, is that the United States had a big experiment with private prisons back uh, over 100 years ago. And a lot of uh, prisons, especially on the West Coast, when they were still territories, the first prisons were, uh, were privately run. The, they were still territories. There really wasn't a state. And you had literally, in a lot of cases, business owners saying, hey, we'll... Um, uh, you know, we'll take over the, the prisoners. You just give us the prisoners. We'll house them, but just got to let us work them for free. And pretty much uh, by the time a lot of these states became, a lot of these territories became prisons, they specifically outlawed uh, private prisons because the experiments turned out so badly. Typically, uh, the prisoners were literally being worked to death. And then um, you kind of fast forward a little bit further. We have the Civil War. You have uh, the... Um, you have the uh, emancipation of African-American slaves, and then you go back to a lot, of, um, a lot of the newly freed slaves are then wind up in the criminal justice system. 
And at that time, it was kind of a mix between um, state-run prison systems that used the convict leasing system, where, again, they um, rented out the prison, the prison labor to companies. In fact, it was uh, prison slave labor that uh, built the railroads and most of what's now the South and uh, the beginning of our highway system in these parts of the South. And that pretty much continued until after World War I when um, basically there was just a series of scandals and there was the movie, uh, one of the early movies, I Escaped from a Chain Gang. And uh, you mentioned earlier that you had a background in music, so, you know, Lead Belly. Uh, and a lot of uh, uh, blues musicians uh, honed, they literally honed their singing skills on these chain gangs. Elvis Presley's father was, uh, was a prisoner at the penitentiary in Parchment, for example. And this is the stuff that kind of led to a backlash against private prisons. And so by the mid-1920s, that was it for private prisons. The American public had had enough. They'd had enough of the brutality, the corruption, the sleaze that goes with it. And, and, I, and I think it's also worth noting is it wasn't just the brutality and the corruption, but like 40 to 50 percent of the prisoners did not survive to see the end of their sentence. That was the mortality rate wow. that, yeah, they, yeah. that they had at that point. And especially after uh, the movie came out, I Escaped from a Chain Gang, that was pretty much it. In a wave of reform, the American public said we've had enough, and that was pretty much it for private prisons. And you kind of think that like a lot of bad ideas that we've experimented with, that, hey, that was the end of it. And unfortunately, uh, you fast forward to the early 1980s, and you've got two guys, uh, Dr. Krantz, and that's his name, Dr., and uh, uh, it's not actually a doctor. No, he's not actually a doctor. He's no more a doctor than we are. But his mama named him a doctor. <laughs> yeah, I so, feel that should like be Dr. like Dre. some <laughs> sort of legal fraud to name your child doctor, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. And, and they came up with the idea of hey, let uh, this, the Reagan administration was in full swing, and they came up with the idea of hey, if we privatize, uh, if we do uh, private prisons, we can cut in, we can get some, we can make some money off of incarcerating people. And that's kind of where it started, and the mod, this modern era, and the big lie that they've foisted on people is the notion that somehow they can run prisons cheaper and better than the government, which that they've never actually been able to show that. Right. But what they have been able to show, though, is that you know they can make they can make a buck for their shareholders and their investors. Right. <laughs> which just again seems fundamentally wrong. Right. And, and I would agree. It is. Yeah. yeah. And so, I guess my question is is. Is there a way to stop it? Yeah, absolutely. It's the government that makes the decisions to uh, contract this stuff out. The politicians are the ones that make the decisions to send prisoners to these companies. And, and one of the things that we see, though, is that um, basically the private prison industry is fairly small. They've not been able to grow beyond. Uh, right now, they're like $3 billion a year as far as their combined gross revenues. And to put this into perspective, the California prison system alone is $11 billion. So the whole, the entire right. private prison industry in the United States combined is less than a third the size and, of California. California is also a tricky uh, spot to use because California is the world's sixth largest economy. <laughs> mm -hmm. just right. On its own, not even mm -hmm. part of the United States, the world's sixth largest economy. Right. So it's yeah, it's a difficult. I always say because when people like to compare California, I'm like, oh, wait a minute, <laughs> California is like its own thing, kind of like New York's its mm -hmm. own thing. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, uh, we can also put this in the context. The Florida prison system is around $2 billion a year in revenues okay. and 97,000 prisoners. The entire private prison industry, including immigration detention, is around 125,000 prisoners. Is immigration detention billion. part of the private? Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yes. Yeah. GEO Group, which is the largest right, private. Uh, they go back and forth depending between on the Between us. CCA yeah. is now called Core Civic, Core isn't Civic. it? Yeah. But yeah. Okay. yeah. And GEO used really? to be known as Whack and Hut. Correct. Oh, yes. Correct. Oh, really? yeah. They yeah. the Wacken Hut uh, castles down over here in uh, Gables by the Sea. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the GEO runs a <laughs> <laughs> quite a few of these immigration G-E-O? major immigration GEO major immigration detention centers, including the one up in uh, Pompano Beach. Really, yeah. a lot of problems there. <laughs> uh, BTC, the Broward Transitional Center, that's a GEO group facility. So they so they do handle a lot of the uh, that. I mean, I guess my question there is, 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 is that wrong? Well, I, I think it is because I think that, you know, you've got, you've got companies that are literally profiting off of uh, human captivity and human misery. And it's also one of those things is the way they make money. Uh, and, you know, literally the way they make money is uh, they cut corners as far as the prisoners go. But mm-hmm. the, where they really make the money is on short staffing the facilities mm-hmm. and using a non-union uh, workforce, right. and, and that's the thing, because 85% of the cost associated with caging people is paying the staff to do the caging. Right. right, right, and there are a lot of complaints about involuntary labor, especially in the immigration uh, detention centers where they are having these, you know, detainees uh, work instead of hiring janitors, etc. And right. I've seen them I was working. Gonna, yeah, and, and I was this gonna, is something they've been Geo specifically has been sued numerous times over this. Right. For, oh, they have. Yeah, several for, suits yeah. pending right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it's essentially slave labor. Right. Absolutely. Effectively, they're being. Uh, I mean, the suits allege that they are uh, the the detainees are being forced to work for basic stuff like food, toiletries, mm-hmm. uh, and they pay mm-hmm. them yeah. a nominally a dollar a day for their work. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 It's pretty now, bad. I have a question also because I've heard stories about um, larger prisons actually having their their com- their convicts or their caged people. I like the way you mm-hmm. put that because that's really what it is. Um, do work for big companies. Yeah, and that we've broken a lot of stories on that and you know, that's the numbers aren't really huge. On any given day there's around okay. 5 5 to 6,000 prisoners nationally working for private companies. How many? Five to six thousand out of two point five million prisoners. Okay. So it's so the numbers themselves aren't huge. That said, um, it's also a good media story when you can run something that uh, prisoners uh, are packaging stuff for Nintendo or Starbucks or making stuff for Boeing, uh, things like that. So I mean, I don't think it's a bad thing for people to to work. I just think that. I guess it's the who's benefiting from it is the question. It's the who's benefiting. Amen. And I mean it's okay if somebody benefits, but as long as that person that's doing the work maybe gets compensated kind of fairly and that's what I, the stories I've heard that it's like pennies a day. That's the whole thing. Uh, basically, I don't think anyone is opposed to the idea of prisoners working are at Human Rights Defense Center our specific thing though is that we believe that prisoners need to be fairly compensated for their work. Mm-hmm. And a big thing that we have to remember too is that prisoners need to be paid a prevailing wage and also keep it because otherwise what it does is it undermines wages in the outside community as well. Here in Florida, there's been a lot of stuff after, especially after hurricanes, where it just sickens me when I see these politicians bragging, especially like here in Miami, that, oh, we use convict slave labor and they hauled away all this debris and rubbish and otherwise we'd have had to spend $3 million or whatever 
those numbers are. And you think about it, no, that's $3 million that would have gone in wages to working people in our community Exactly. that would have helped rebuild our community. And instead, they're bragging about the enslavement of prisoners where they're not paying them anything. And, and I think that's one of the things that often gets overlooked is when you talk to some people and they think, oh, prison slavery is good because, you know, let's, you know. Let's, Who says that? I've there, never heard anybody say that. There isn't a single person in elected office in this country that is opposed to prison slavery. Really? Nope. That I, that sounds awful. I mean, just even saying the sentence prison slavery sounds awful. Well, well, part of the problem is the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, because I think a lot of people are misinformed and think that after after the Civil War ended, that slavery was ended in the United States. And it wasn't ended. It was basically limited to people that have been convicted of a crime. And this is why, when I mentioned earlier about after the Civil War, when uh, we had a lot of newly freed slaves finding themselves in uh, in prison and in jail and such, that was kind of the direct outgrowth of the, of the 13th Amendment. It's like, okay, we can't just um, enslave people based on the color of their skin, so now we're going to enslave them based on the fact that they've been convicted of something. Right. And, and that was what kind of drove a lot of the uh, incarceration in the South after the Civil War. So one of the things that um, really threw me was I was listening to an NPR story, and it, this was this was about uh, private prisons in Oklahoma. And one of the things that really I was like, seriously? They said, oh, well, the contract with the private prison and the state requires that the beds stay 90% full. So... I mean, that, that means you have to be finding people, convicting them of crimes, even mm-hmm. if you... Well, there's like, a, a <sighs> really interesting case going on right now uh, in a, the Glades County Detention Center uh, up by uh, Lake Okeechobee. Moorhaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, uh, effectively, they were close to shutting the facility down. I guess I should back up. Uh, they the, the county up there basically created... What is effectively a private company, uh, they created a nonprofit to solicit bonds from like Wall Street investors to open this prison and keep it open. Uh, and effectively, the way they have maintained uh, this facility is by shipping in federal, mostly ICE detainees from uh, A around the state and sometimes around the country. Mm. Uh, and they nearly, because uh, in right around the end of Barack Obama's tenure, he, uh, A, had, I mean, he was a horrible deporter let's you know yeah don't get mm-hmm. it mixed up but he had matched in history yeah exactly <laughs> yeah he had, uh, he had obama deported tons of people yeah yeah and yeah. so i i don't want to i don't want to lose that point but he right. had at the end of his tenure kind of slowed that his number of apprehensions down a little bit and the glaze county detention center was close to closing because they weren't uh getting as many ice detainees anymore and this is something you can quite literally go back in the news clips and read is that the sheriffs running the, the center were saying, oh, well, we need more detainees and we need to find a way to bring more people into this jail facility or we'll all lose our jobs. And fast forward two years and there's, again, a news clip you can read from the local press up there that literally says business is booming for the Glades County Detention Center under yes, Donald sir. Trump. Yes, yeah. sir. Well, I don't know if you also remember, during the very, very end of um, Obama's term, back at the end of ni- uh, 2016, um, they uh, he had ordered the Justice Department that uh, they were going to phase out the BOP, the federal prisons, the federal, use yeah. of private 
uh, prisons. Right. As soon as Trump took power, they reversed that. Yeah. A lot of um, uh, Sessions, former aides, are now lobbyists for GEO Group. Jeff Sessions, the And Jeff the Sessions, the attorney general. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think uh, these private prisons really benefit benefited from these increased immigration detentions that we're seeing. Yeah, They're I making think a lot of money. prices went up. Yeah. A lot oh, of money. But, but that actually goes back to the Bill Clinton administration. Yeah. And, and part of the thing is what you're talking about it, as far as like the occupancy thing is it's what we've reported a lot of these contracts. We've got these contracts on our website. And basically what it is is they get paid based on full occupancy. In other words, the prison can be empty, but the government's obligated to pay them based on at least 90% occupancy. Mm. And to an extent, I don't have a problem with that because I think if you know if you want to shuffle taxpayer money at these companies and they don't cage people, that's fine too. <laughs> sure. And you know, let, let's take the misery and the suffering factor out and just just make it a corruption boondoggle. Right. And but this actually goes back to the late '90s. Um, basically, CCA and Geo were tanking uh, due to their own corruption, mismanagement, everything else. Both companies were on the verge of being delisted. Um, from the New York Stock Exchange. Their stock was trading at like 19 cents a share, which when my colleagues and I discussed this, why didn't we buy their stock at that time? <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, and I say, well, because we're not a bunch of capitalist pigs. But, yeah. um, but anyways, but Bill Clinton and Congress were the ones that bailed them out with these sweetheart immigration right. contracts. And what these, what these immigration contracts have is these just grossly inflated rates that the that these private prison companies are being paid mm -hmm. to cage immigration detainees. So whereas the state of Mississippi is paying twenty seven or twenty nine dollars a day to cage a convicted felon, ICE is paying uh, Geo and CCA one hundred and sixty two dollars mm -hmm. a day mm -hmm. to cage an immigration detainee, and. Many times non-criminal, just... Right, non-criminal, non-criminal defense, just right. whatever. And, mm -hmm. you know, when you start thinking about it, um, I think you can stay at a pretty decent hotel with room service <laughs> here in Miami mm -hmm. in the off-season for $162 mm -hmm. a day. And But there's no correlation between uh, any of this stuff in terms of, you know, what their costs are or whatever. And the immigration contracts have really been what's floated the financial boat of the private prison industry for yes. the past 20 years. Yes. And that's where they're making a disproportionate mm -hmm. amount of their profits. But a lot of this has to do, though, with the whole way government procurement works. Because um, when earlier in the show, we say that, you know, the government's one that makes the decisions to do this, we've got a very perverse form of money laundering. And here's the difference. Jeff Sessions can go to Congress and tell them, hey, I need more money uh, to lock people up uh, for immigration or for prisons or whatever. But Jeff Sessions can't give them a, can't give politicians a bunch of money. And these private prison companies, they have lobbyists, they make campaign donations, and they spread the money evenly across the aisle. It doesn't matter. You can be a Democrat, you can be a Republican. Mm -hmm. If you can help them cage people and get paid to do so, they will pay you. And so you basically have the government contracts going to these companies who then turn around and recycle those taxpayer dollars into the form of campaign donations back to the politicians that are sending them the very contracts. So you kind of got this sleazy cycle of money laundering with our taxpayer dollars that you don't see with government prisons. And, right. and, I'm, and I'm not here to be an apologist for the government prisons because I'm not. <laughs> and But we do have to note, though, that the DOC secretary goes to the state legislature he or she isn't there with a checkbook ready to dole out checks if they send them more prisoners. So um, just in your guys' experiences, um, based on, besides the 
fundamental concept of private prison versus a state prison being what it is. Uh, are there any specifics that you or stories you've heard where you could point out like where something on the private prison side was maybe better than what was being done on the state side or vice versa? Sure. Yeah. Tell me. Um, I would say the two, one of the good things about the fact that um, the private prison industry has a non-union workforce that's very low paid. They have very high turnover. So you don't have the violent gang culture among the guards. Um, mm. You know, Tell I me mean, about that. <laughs> Tell me about violent gang culture among guards. Well, this is endemic in state prisons and mm. also in federal prisons. I mean, periodically in prison legal news, uh, we'll run the stories about at the federal uh, supermax prisons in uh, Colorado, uh, there was a gang of guards. They called themselves the Cowboys. And they, um, they basically went around beating the crap out of prisoners they mm -hmm. didn't like and covering it up in some cases falsifying criminal charges against the prisoners. Um, and eventually um, this kind of came undone. Uh, one of the guards uh, blew the whistle on, of course, no one above the rank of lieutenant got uh, convicted. The buck stopped at the lieutenant, uh, with the lieutenant, not the warden. Right. And you know, one of the more memorable um, lines that was recorded by the renegade guard that uh, went undercover then was when the FBI is starting to question uh, some of the prison guards. He asked the lieutenant, what should I do? And the lieutenant says, lie until you die. Wow. And, wow. <laughs> oh, man. And, but, but in a lot of prison systems, like, you know, here in, uh, here in Florida, for example, you know, we have not too far from where we're recording this show, Darren Rainey was scalded to death um, by prison guards in his cell. He was literally burned to death. And... Oh. You know, and this is endemic. No one was fired. Um, you know, no one's been convicted. It took the medical examiner four years to even rule it was a homicide. Um, and, and again, I think this is the thing. You know, we're not comparing pristine apples with pristine oranges. Right. We're, we're comparing, a, you know, a truckload of rotten maggot-filled fruit just with a different driver on the car. Yeah, yeah I mean, listen... It, there's, there's no question that um, we need prisons and that there is crime out there and we need a, a system to process it. I guess th at the end of the day, it's it's how we as a community uh, process those, you know, our neighbors that are, you know, I mean, because sometimes it can just be somebody that, like you said, they're in the detention center. They didn't even commit a crime. They're in mm -hmm. the detention center. Or mm -hmm. uh, maybe it was a young guy that did something stupid. And because young guys tend to do stupid or you've been stuff, picked up for swerving in and out of a traffic lane, well, and you had an immigration detainer. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so, but it's it to me, it's also what happens during this process that um, when they get out, you know, what happens? We know that we have high recidivism rates here. We know that that it's more of a punishment system than it is a reform system. Um, is there is there a, a plus to the private systems for or the yeah, Christy, you were My shaking your head before, too. My uh, experience yeah. with these privately owned prisons has been very negative. Right. I visited quite a few of the facilities, both on the immigration side as well as federal prisons, um, one of them being D. Ray James up, up in Folkestone, Georgia, is a major uh, uh, place where a lot of uh, prisoners uh, convicted in the Southern District of Florida are transferred to. And... I've just heard all kinds of stories, and uh, you know, Wait, prisoners that are convicted in Florida go. Oh well, if you're if you're if you're convicted of a federal crime, federal, oh, okay, yeah, you yeah. are tra right. I'm talking about federal prisons. Okay. Um, you are trans. You can be transferred anywhere in the country, anywhere, okay. depending on your security level. And but a lot of them end up there because um, that is what they call a criminal alien requirement. 
prison. So these are all federal prisoners with immigration detainers on them. And the facility is just awful, awful. I hear all kinds of stories and I've been up there. And, um, you know, even though they are supposed, supposed to be adhering to federal standards, a lot of them don't. And there's not a lot of oversight. Yeah, because you hear, oh, the federal prison, if you can do a crime, do a federal crime. Because it's like, yeah. you know, it's, it's... The federal prison camp here in Florida, right. yeah, everybody wants to be there. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I've just had you know, some awful experiences. I've had clients that have been abused by guards. I had one client who miscarried. Um, I've had clients whose medical needs were not attended to, and that does happen in the BOP, you know, run prisons. But I just feel like it's a lot more prevalent in these private prisons. Yeah. Because, um, again, you know, they're there to make a profit, and I feel like that yeah. is the... And they're understaffed. And, mm-hmm. yeah. Exactly. Yeah, because and you just made a comment about something in the medical, because that's also a big the issue. medical care is horrific for state, federal, and private prisons. And it especially is. one of the big things that, that we've seen, too, is when we're, people generally aren't thinking about them as private prison companies, but we have a lot of companies that basically they let the state privatize their entire medical care system. That both That's both at the jail level and the DOC level. And basically these are like the HMOs from hell. And they have a real simple business model, which is the same business model that GEO and CCA uh, have, which is basically you get as much taxpayer money as you can and you provide as little service as possible. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that manifests itself in uh, lack of staffing, and then, heaven forbid, anyone should get um, any type of uh, serious or chronic illness because more likely than not, they're going to die. A couple around two years ago, the Palm Beach Post did a really good series, uh, which we we reprinted, about um, the privatization of healthcare here in the in Florida by the DOC. And before the health system was privatized, an average of 35 to 40 prisoners a year died for medical reasons in the Florida DOC. And that had been a pretty stable number for a decade. And 35 to 40, if you go to a prison population of 100,000, within a year of it being privatized and taken over by Corizon, those deaths went from 35 to 40 a year to four to 500 a year. So you've got like literally 0.5% of the prison population is dying of medical neglect every year. Those numbers have held steady. And there's just, I was just reading a news report um, a couple of months ago when the latest round of stats came out. And so, and the person writing it observes, wow, prisoners seem to be dying younger and healthier than ever before. And it's like, but this is because, you know, we don't have, these aren't situations where uh, prisoners are dying of exotic diseases or, um, you know, bizarre things that are unknown to science. It's no, we've got people that are dying Diabetics are dying because they don't have insulin. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, people are dying from hypertension because they mm-hmm. don't. They're not getting pills that cost like you know five cents a day. Hepatitis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 you know fungal infections and all kinds of things because of the lack of hygiene. I mean, they but, are notoriously dirty places. <laughs> well, yeah, I um, imagine they must be. But like, wouldn't you think that people that work in the healthcare sector? I mean, a lot of those people they kind of have a calling. I mean, it, you don't necessarily go into that business to, to, to get like rich. the doctors that worked at Dachau and Auschwitz. That's pretty much the same wow. thing. We, right now, the Human Rights Defense Center, we're about to file a lawsuit. Uh, in fact, this morning, uh, when, when I was scheduling the show, um, I had to schedule a meeting with the family of a prisoner. We're about to file a lawsuit next week or the following week. Our client, his name is Vincent Gaines. He starved to death. 
in the Florida DOC. He went into prison weighing 190 pounds. By the time he left in a body bag, uh, seven months later, he weighed 110 pounds. He starved to death. And this is the thing is, you know, we're not talking about, um, and I read prison stuff from around the world. I mean, if there's anything happening in prison, at some point it flashes across someone's computer screen at HRDC and the more interesting stuff gets forwarded to me. And when I read about in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, 100 prisoners starved to death because, you know, I think the warden there would say, hey, we're a poor country. The government isn't giving me the means to feed the prisoners and their families are too poor to feed them too. So yeah, I guess people starve to death. But we're not the Democratic Republic of the Congo. No. We're not Haiti. Right. And this is happening at Rayford here in Florida mm-hmm. on a prison system spending over that has over $2 billion a year. And just like Darren Rainey was scalded and burned to death by the guards, our client was literally starved to death by the people in his custody that, were, that, were, that had a constitutional duty to safeguard them. And to me, the thing is, like when you, the differences in some respects, I think this is even worse, is when you can think about cases like, um, like uh, Darren Rainey. And are you guys old enough to remember uh, Frank Valdez? He was a prisoner on death row here in Florida in 96 or 97. Uh, he, was, he was on death row for killing a prison guard. And a gang of prison guards beat him to death. And they didn't just beat him to death like, hey, things got a little out of hand, but every single one of his ribs was broken, his testicles were crushed, he had boot prints on his face beat to death. And ultimately, the six guards were charged with his murder. A jury acquitted all six of them of second-degree murder charges. So this is kind of like the the system we're talking about here in Florida. It's an uninterrupted line of brutality and cruelty. But unlike the those cases, like Frank Valdez getting beat to death, which happened in probably less than an hour or two, unlike Darren Rainey being burned to death, which I think the medical examiner said it would have taken around an hour and a half at scalding temperatures for the skin to peel, uh, for the meat to start falling off his bones and for his skin to start sliding off, our client was starved to death and having reported a lot on hunger strikes, uh, going back to Bobby Sands and that, mm-hmm. we know that for fit young men, it takes 45 to 60 days before you die from malnutrition. That's when you're making the conscious effort of you know refusing all food, right. just drinking water. You know it's well documented how long it takes men in captivity to starve to death. Right. So that's what happened to our client. To our and he was a mentally ill. African-American man in his 50s. They knew he had mental health problems, and he starved to death. Which leads me to ask the next question, mental health. (laughs) Because it doesn't seem that the prison systems are necessarily equipped to cope and deal with mental health, yet it seems that uh, probably a good amount of people that are incarcerated have mental health issues i mean is that depending on who's doing the counting and how it's being figured depending on the state 40 to 60 percent of prisoners are judged to be seriously mentally ill and that's in the context of access one or access two disorders this isn't just hey johnny's got some issues this is no serious paranoia schizophrenia bipolar disorder right um you know you name it and and personally i think those numbers are are low i think they're underreported because people don't people in prison generally don't have a lot of incentive to self-report as being as being mentally ill or mentally disabled yeah i mean i I just want to ask you a question real quick um uh jerry about you do a lot of reporting on um corruption so I'm just curious if you if you hear a lot because that's a huge number, fifty percent of the population being uh, having mental health issues. 
mean, there's got to be a lot of corrupt stuff happening in the system. Do you have any input on that stuff? Or in terms of corruption, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure anyone can rattle off you know tiny specific stories, but I, I, right. I frankly I don't think that is necessarily the problem as much as you know having sort of a long-standing system that is just a societally you know as a country we're not really we don't talk about mental health issues we don't discuss them we don't have a insurance system or care system in place where poor people are able to get care uh and then we have on top of that a criminal justice system that has criminalized you know most basic you know if you're say in the street and suffering from serious mental crisis you know what are you going to do? You're going to be screaming sometimes. You're going to be, you know, talking yeah. to strangers and saying, acting you know, erratic, acting right? erratic. Yeah. And those things are criminalized. And, I, you know, you can talk about corruption in that in, in that context, but frankly, you know, you can rid the system of, of any corruption you want. It's, you know, it's still going to express itself that way because that's the way the society is, is sort of designed. But, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, but we do have plenty oh, of Oh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not telling there isn't. But. Yeah, let's, oh, yeah, not, no, there yeah. Is. let's not forget that James Crosby, <laughs> yeah. the former Department of Corrections secretary in 2006 or 2005, was sentenced to 12 years in federal prison for taking kickbacks from the canteen vendors here in Florida. <laughs> Crazy. And the part that gets me, though, is so he went to prison for taking the bribes, but the companies all still kept the contracts that they paid him the bribes to do. And I think when all was said and done, like 30 or 40 FDOC senior officials went to prison on corruption charges. And mm-hmm. recently, uh, Chris Epps, the Mississippi DOC director, he got sentenced to 26 years in federal prison when basically the entire he put the entire state prison up system up for sale. <laughs> Everything, everyone was paying him kickbacks from the telephone vendors oh, to yeah. the private prison companies. The company oh, yeah. sold urine cups for urine testing. Oh, yeah. Everyone was giving him a kickback. Incredible. And, and I think this is actually really endemic. And is that now is, was he running a private prison or a no, state prison? No, he was the DOC director he for was the state Department of, of Corrections director. Yeah, and every vendor that was doing business with the Mississippi Department of Corrections was paying tribute to Charles Epps. And I think that what's really critical about this is the lack of oversight and lack of transparency that facilitates and encourages the brutality, the mistreatment, the killings that happen in prisoners. This is a prime environment for corruption as Mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. You know, listen, I mean, the whole concept of prison, I think, just for the general public is, okay, we don't want to know what you do over there. Just go take the Mm -hmm. bad people, put them over there, Mm -hmm. and we just deal with them. We don't want to know because, I mean... I'm guilty of that, you know? I mean, until I started doing this show and or a conversation here or there or I read a story or hear a story and say, hey, that seems kind of screwy. I don't, I don't think that's right. But n- the reality of it is, you know, it's like it's like death. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't like to plan for, for their dying day. It's coming, mm-hmm. uh, but people don't want to plan for it. Um, and this prisons are the same way. It's like, hey, I want my streets safe. I want my school safe. Uh, you know, so you take the bad people and put them away, and what you do with them, I don't care. Problem is that I see now it does have a big effect on our community. And when I say our community, I mean the whole country, but I'm just working from this community. I see how it affects my community. But, you know, but I think that's one of those things. It's one thing to ask people what their views are on crime and punishment and, hey, what do you think should happen to people that are accused of a crime or convicted of a crime? But I think most people as taxpayers 
I don't think most of us really like the idea of some guy exactly. that we're paying $200,000 to be the head of a government agency pocketing millions of dollars in bribes no doubt. to sell out his government office. No yeah. doubt. And, and even if even if you're okay with the idea of, you know, prisoners being locked up or even, um, you know, treated not harshly treated or harshly. having to work or labor. Yeah. Right. But the idea that the DOC director is using his government job to line his pockets at taxpayer expense. Yeah. I don't think I don't know. There's too many people that. No, it's a scumbag move for sure. Yeah, I, I don't think too many people are going to say yeah. It's I'm definitely down with that. A, yeah. It's like yeah. come on, yeah. I, but uh, to me, it seems like those are almost two separate questions of yeah. you know how much do you tolerate, I mean, and, and I, I don't deny that you know it's a system that engenders corruption because you create a class of people that are basically ignored, uh, and then exactly. But at the same time, I think it still is sort of two different questions of, uh, and I don't think anyone would disagree with yeah, me no, of you yeah, know what no. do, what do you do from a punishment standpoint uh and then a b how much corruption do you tolerate in the system etc right um and you know something i wanted to get back to uh that you said early on uh i think almost in the intro even was just the idea that you know nobody uh it was if i'm quoting you correctly you know nobody denies the idea that we need prisons but i mean there's a gigantic decarceration movement which i'm sure you all discussed uh ad nauseum on this podcast and if you're talking private prisons, it's just a system that is in, intentionally designed to, yeah. you know, cage people. Yeah, well, and uh, perpetuate. Perpetuate. That's yeah. what I'm looking for. Is perpetuates the carceral system. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's, it's awful. Uh, yeah, it's awful. It encourages somewhere along the line. I would assume that judges must be influenced somehow because they're the ones the handing down the sentence. Yeah. Some of them yeah. are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, but you know, a judge. Listen. I mean, a judge could sit in their chambers, you know, all day doing a crossword puzzle and probably still get paid if they had two cases a week. But the problem is that, you know, like a lot of the things that we see, especially like here in Florida and other parts of the country, is the judges are imposing fees on criminal defendants and then their salary depends on how many fees they impose on people. So they've actually got a vested financial interest in terms of how many people they're processing and how many people they're loading up with fees and fines. Wait a minute. You're saying that there's a direct connection? Yes. How, how is that possible? Uh, the fees that they routinely assess on criminal defendants here in Florida, Louisiana, and a bunch of other states go to pay the judges' salaries, also the prosecutors and the public defenders as well. So the only people that aren't getting a part of this action are, are, is the private criminal defense bar. But um, this goes back to one of the things that I think that one of the seismic shifts that's happened, I think, in our lifetime is when I started Prison Legal News in 1990, we had a million people locked up. So it took the United States from 1776 to 1990 to lock up the first million people. Then between 1990 and 2000, we locked up another million. So it took us wow. it took us over 200 years to lock up the first million. Then it took us 10 years to lock up the second million. That's a lot of people being locked up in 10 years. When, is that this, is those are those the right numbers? Yeah, those yeah. are the right numbers. I lived it, and. Wow. And I was reporting on one of the things that where this kind of really came up for me, and this sounds really, it seems, it sounds really silly, but as prison legal news was growing, we started out as a newsletter focused on Washington State. And then for various reasons, we, we expanded nationally. Um, prisoners around the country started subscribing to us, so our readership grew. And by the mid-90s, we, we, had, a, we had a database program where, in access where we were tracking everything. 
and the United States we're, we're opening up like one or two, two thousand one and two thousand bed prisons every week or every two weeks <laughs> for ten years, and so we saw our database. Uh, when we started out, I think in the 90s, in the, the first 10 years that we were in business as a publication, we added around 900 new prison addresses into our database. Wow. And it got to the point where when we first started the, you know, when we first started, uh, when we first came up with our database program, the programmers like, so how big of a deal is it to, to, um, to add new addresses. And I was naive at the time saying, well, gosh, they don't open up that many prisons, so it's okay if, if you do it. And then it got to the point where we're bugging him every, every month, we had like three or four requests, and he's like, okay, I'm gonna rewrite this so you guys can add the addresses. And then we had literally a routine so that as we're, as we're getting subscriptions from these new prisons, we had to streamline a process to expand our database. Wow. And I think, uh, what you just described is, you know, why it's so important when you see so many of these activists on the ground. Uh, I mean, it, obviously, there's, you know, always been anti-prison activism, but, you know, right. you're, you're seeing this sort of renewed kind of groundswell of it right now, yeah. is that when you open a new facility, a new, any, you know, any new wing of this where money starts going, where people start getting hired, where, uh, especially where, you know, union workers are working shutting those things down then becomes almost impossible. Right. And it's not impossible, but it's remarkably difficult. I, that, yeah, I get that yeah. because now you're starting to take jobs away from a community. Yes. and yeah. The yeah. irony is it's easier to shut down private prisons. They lose a contract. <laughs> they shutter that place and mothball until they mm -hmm. get the next contract. But these government prisons, it's ironic because as Jerry was saying, and you go to New York and uh, Illinois, they've, sh they've depopulated these prisons and they're fully staffed. You've got like 300 guards and like you know six prisoners sweeping the floors and yeah. but you know no and that's part of the thing about using prisons as as trying to use prisons as engines of economic development and or as we like to say you know welfare for poor rural white communities okay yeah no i mean i'm just sitting here wondering is there another use for these places it, they need to be bulldozed really i mean part of the thing is that uh you know uh is everyone familiar with the maginot line so before world war ii the french built this elaborate line of concrete and steel bunkers and fortifications to keep the nazis from invading france well the germans just went around it and invaded france anyways <laughs> but but for its day that was one of the biggest public works project in european history and the french sunk you know, billions of francs into the ground, into these into these massive fortifications. But then it's like, okay, the war's over. Um, no one's going to invade France anytime soon. What do we do with it? It's just rotting in the ground. And that's the same thing with prisons. They've come up with this thing about you know how do we um, how do we repurpose prisons? First right. off. They've built them in these remote rural um, places, which to paraphrase or, or to quote our beloved president are shitholes. Yeah. And these places were in economic trouble because there's no economic activity there. The prison doesn't resuscitate that. Right. Ironically, the places that the prisons were in good places, like there was the Riverside uh, prison in uh, New Jersey, which was on prime real estate territory. They built, they spent like $200 million building this prison complex in the 90s. The real estate developers wanted it, and they got it. They shut down the prison. The bulldozers came in. The prison is gone. Now it's right. condos and a right. shopping mall right. and stuff like that. But the problem with the prisons is 
you can't really repurpose them. This is almost the same market. I, I spoke um, last year, late last year, the, uh, the American Academy of Architecture has, um, has a criminal justice group. And these are the architects that design prisons and jails. And I was one of their speakers. And it was a really interesting encounter for me because I, I think I'm fairly well informed on criminal justice issues. And anytime I can learn something new, it's, it's pretty good. And I, was, and I was talking to these architects and specifically about that, okay, you guys build these prisons. Right. So what can you do with them if you shut them down, if you don't um, do anything with them? And they're all like, you know, you pretty much got to bulldoze them. There's really, really, when we're designing these prisons, there really isn't anything else you There's can do with them. nothing else to do with them. You're not going to turn them into a college. You're not going to turn them into, you know, therapeutic centers. You're, and they've tried that. Yeah, with dismal but, results. Yeah. yeah. Christy, I'm just curious um, uh, your your point of view on you, you you practiced in all 50 states. Well, yes, immigration law. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and I've also practiced you know in, in federal uh, courts across the right. country. Um, but yes, I've had. Uh, I'm curious to know some. Of, I'm curious to know some of your like horror stories and which state is <laughs> oh. the most horrific. Well, uh, well, you know, and this is really the 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 private prisons and the BOP facilities in yeah. other states. I've just really had more stories, more horror stories from the private prisons than the BOP yeah. facilities. And yeah. again, I had a client that you know was bleeding and bleeding and bleeding, and she was pregnant. She wasn't attended to. She miscarried. Um, I've heard stories of people being sexually abused by the guards. I've heard stories of rats running around in the kitchen. I mean, all kinds of things. Yeah, not yeah. present. Yeah. Yeah. But so, out of all fifty states, which one? Well, I, I think that the facilities which one is the shithole? <laughs> a lot of the facilities in Georgia tend to be pretty bad. Really, I don't know why, but I hear a lot of stories out of Georgia. Maybe it's because I've had a lot of clients detained in the state of Georgia. But um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's all across the country. Um, yeah, and I, I always say this: um, you know, people don't get involved in these things until it affects them personally. Mm-hmm. So, you know. It, if if you're listening to this show and you've gone through it, you know. Mm-hmm. But if you've never gone through it uh, and you've or you've never seen one of these places, mm-hmm. I always encourage people, you know, get involved now because if something does happen to somebody you know or yeah. to you, well, you you should be a, a lot further ahead of the game uh, if you know something because it's a scary it's a scary uh, place to be out there. Uh, in any of these prisons, but particularly in the states that seem to have more of these private prisons that seem to want to arrest people and convict people because they have to meet these quotas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think one of the things, too, that we shouldn't overlook, I, I think one of the things is when you look at um, other, um, you know, when you look at the phenomenon of mass incarceration, you think, okay, we're talking about people committing criminal offenses and getting arrested. One of the things that I think is the beauty of the uh, the American system of mass incarceration is that uh, we're not waiting for people to commit crimes. On any given day to day, right now as we're sitting here recording this show, around 50,000 Americans are locked up because they're too poor to pay child support. Yep. They're not, they haven't been accused of a criminal offense. They haven't been charged with a criminal offense. Right. They're just too poor to pay child support. In most parts of the world, having children isn't necessarily viewed as something that's going to get you locked up. Right. And then we've got uh, this whole system of fines, for example, mm-hmm that quickly bleeds over into uh, incarceration, where they ha- there's an ordinance that says that you have to mow your lawn while you're disabled, and you can't mow your lawn, and you can't pay someone to do it. Well, now you're being fined. Well, 
because you're poor, you can't pay the fine. Now you're going to jail. And and th- and again, no one's been accused of a, of a crime here in the sense in the traditional sense. And I right. think we know that there's two types of crimes. There's the ones that are crimes because they're wrong. And, you know, any society that you go through throughout recorded human history, murder is wrong, rape is wrong, right. robbery is wrong. There's no dispute about that. And I don't think you're going to find anyone that says, hey, yeah, it's okay to kill people. Right. Um, and then we've got the stuff that's a crime because the government says so. And, and, and how many people do you say are locked up because of that? Just on the child support, we did an article. Uh, and part of what got me thinking about this is we sue a lot of jails around mm-hmm. First Amendment issues. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at the roster for a jail in South Carolina that we were suing. And it was like a four or 500 bed jail. And I keep seeing, and you know, the charge that they were incarcerated for was failure to pay child support. Mm-hmm. And there's like literally page Which after page. counterintuitive wow. to put right. the person that needs to go earn the money yeah. In jail, jail where exactly. they can't earn any exactly. money. Exactly, and yeah, there are also the poor defendants that you know are locked up pre-trial just because they can't make cash bail. Exactly, right. uh, and that's a huge problem. Huge problem. Yeah, yeah we've yeah. had all over the we, country. We did an entire episode on the bail bond system, and it's also seems like one of these self-feeding systems where you have the insurance companies on the corporate mm-hmm. side, mm-hmm. you know, being fed the the, the, mm-hmm. the fees that the bail bondsmen are putting up, mm-hmm. that the people are paying their ten percent if they can. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, th- listen, I think that the whole money bail system is crazy. It is crazy, yeah. and we're one of the very few countries in the world that even does that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And on the immigration side, you have a lot of companies that, that have come in, and they, you know, they help you if you don't have property to put up. And a lot of these immigrants, you know, they're new to this country. They don't have that. Exactly. And so, you know, they, they tell you, okay, well, you know, instead of putting up 10%, you're going to put up 30%, but you don't have a house, no problem. And then you get out. They're like, okay, let me slap on an ankle monitor, mm-hmm. a private company slapping on an ankle monitor, you and you have to pay, pay $800 yeah. a month. Right. Yeah, yeah. Or, or you go back in. Or you in. forfeit your bail. Yeah. I mean, it's... An- bought one of the ankle monitor companies. <laughs> Yeah, it's madness. Yeah, yeah. It is maddening. Expanding. There was a, a uh, Congressman Carlos Curbelo, it was a story we wrote uh, not long ago, I want to say it was roughly a year ago now, um, was there's a group called, one of the groups, Libre by Nexus. Libre uh, by Nexus. Yes, uh, Notorious, yes. And uh, Curbelo was uh, uh, hosting a talk, a, a uh, you know, just a happy-go-lucky dis- uh, panel discussion, you know, alongside these Libre people who who are just transparently profiting off of this system. Wow. Uh, we reached out to him and I was like, hey, you know, this company is, you know, here's like, you know, 900 different stories of, of immigrants complaining that they're being, you know, fleeced by this company. Uh, and magically he, he uh, you know, hours after we contacted him said he was no longer appearing. But, you know, these, these companies uh, insinuate themselves into the political system. Mm-hmm. And, and that yeah. is, you know, again, why... I just feel like the activism on these issues is so important because it's yeah. you can't really let up for a second because these companies are just dying right there. to just They're infect right the political they system. Are, right? Yeah. But but I think the part of the thing is, you yeah, know, that when point. we talk about the laundering of the government yeah. of the government money, it's like, you know, Marco Rubio gets I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars a year from Geo. Mm-hmm. George Zoli, the president of Geo Corporation, he's hosting uh, fundraisers in his mansion in Boca for the governor. Yeah. And you know, and you see this pattern play itself all play itself out around the country you know yeah. and, and it goes regardless of political party oh, yeah. it's oh, yeah. not you know we're not gonna just say so, that it's yeah. just a republican problem right yeah. so so how do we um how i guess what i'm trying to say is if this is such a, a, a systemic problem and and uh we want to make a change is it based just on 
voting, yes, voting is very important. People, you should all vote. But if it, if you're telling me it's on both sides and that whoever's going into that, they're going to be approached and attacked, I mean, I don't know. The problem is, the, what this gets to the fundamental problem with the American prison system is that we don't have candidates. You know, it's not so much the voting because I, I look at this as someone who has an interest um, – I guess I'm a single issue voter too, but you know, so I my my single issue that I look for on or my some of my issues that I look for when I'm voting for candidates are what's their stance on the death penalty, mm-hmm. and just right right off the bat, I'm not talking crazy like hey, people in prison should get adequate medical care, they shouldn't be enslaved. <laughs> right. Let's just start off something really basic. The <laughs> right. government shouldn't be in the business of killing its citizens. Right. Yeah. And you know, I think that's a real bottom line thing that so when i'm going in at like statewide election i'm not sure that i have any statewide candidates that are opposed to the death penalty in florida right um you know i i lived in vermont for 10 years and bernie sanders didn't come out against the death penalty until he was running for president for 20 plus years or 30 years in congress he voted for every death penalty bill that came his way he voted for every tough on crime bill that that came along Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think because the 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 small mindedness of the the community and the electorate again is i want to be safe and it seems that almost every politician always runs on well i'll be tough on crime Right. They all run yeah, on that. Right. You know, I think you counter that by saying that none of this has any actual correlation with basic public safety for the most part. You exactly. Know, we, yeah. Yes. I mean, I, mean, yeah. I, I 100% agree yeah. with that. But I think they look for a way to weaponize fear in people. Well, yeah, and, that's for sure. And, and you know, and, and it's, it's just sort of, I feel like, you know, people who are accused of or convicted of crimes are an easy target, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, it, also because they make the rest of us feel... Um, fear and that's been programmed into us you know if somebody uh if somebody's you know a, a former prisoner and you hear that you know this guy was in prison before you're like right. oh wait a minute let me well, check my wallet you uh-huh. know make sure this uh-huh. uh, guy doesn't just keep my wife and kids away from here but that's not necessarily true and and we know that because i know plenty of people who have gone to prison who are good people and they got caught up in a bad situation but they're good people. But we, in general, don't process the information that way. The same way the court of public opinion doesn't process people are innocent until proven guilty. I don't know who we can blame that on. TV, the media, politicians, I don't know. But it seems to me that most of the time, somebody gets arrested, you see me in handcuffs, you're like, ah, that guilty son yeah, of a bitch. I think it's human nature. But, but, I, but I also think, too, a lot of it has to do with hu- humanizing people. And I think there's a huge amount of effort that goes into dehumanizing yeah. Uh, not, not just, I think, and I don't think this applies just in the criminal justice context. I think it applies to foreign policy issues. We see this, I think, whether it's immigration or whoever. Yeah. Long as you're doing horrible stuff to other people or people that you right. don't actually know who they are. I, I think one of the things I look at is that one of the big triumphs, I think, uh, I think one of the modern so- civil rights triumphs in my lifetime has been that of the gay rights movement. Yeah, huge. And, and I think, you know, when I was born, uh, being gay was a criminal offense. Gay sex was a criminal offense in lots of places. It was a mental disorder, according to the American Psychiatric Society. And I think that one of the the things that really changed that was I, I forget which U.S. Supreme Court justice it was that voted um, in upholding Georgia's sodomy law. But he said someone asked him, "How could you vote for this law?" And he's like, "Well, there aren't that many homosexuals. I don't know any." And, <laughs> and it was like, well, no, actually, you knew a lot. They just weren't yeah, out of public about yeah. it. 
and that's been one of the things that I think that one of the things that happened is that as gay people became more visible in our society, the bigotry and discrimination is not just like, you know, who is this mythical homosexual? But then it's like, well, wait, no, actually it's my uncle or it's my right. neighbor. Right. Humanize hey, my, my kid, mm -hmm. my child is right. gay. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, at this point, you know, and I think that's one of the things, that especially for, for most people, it, it's like, you know, whatever your circle of friends and family is, we're most concerned about our children. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm going to go right back to the beginning of this show when Christy said it's about white privilege because, yes, sir. listen, transgender people would not be getting the respect they get if it wasn't because there was a white dude, <laughs> Bruce Jenner, who wanted to become a white right. chick. Mm -hmm. That's the, that's a fact. I mean, and that's white privilege right there in front of you. Yeah. It, it, it's not because of some something else. It's because a white dude wanted to do it. Well, but at the end of the day, it's a good thing that it I think that there's thing. more yeah. trans yeah. visibility. I'll use the example of Congresswoman Ross Letnin, who yeah. has a transgender son. Exactly. And she's changed so much. Yeah, of course. Um, and no, there, it's plenty for of, the better. Yeah, plenty of mm -hmm. politicians that all of a sudden they, they're against it, against it, against it. Oh, what? My son is gay? Mm -hmm. You know what? My son's not such a bad guy. Mm -hmm. It's not so bad to be mm -hmm. gay. And you're right. It is the uncle or the friend or the and you realize, wait, this person is I like this person. Uh, okay, so who cares who you sleep with? Yeah, and then and then of course speaking of Bruce Jenner, you know the woman he killed uh, in the traffic accident. That negligent homicide investigation doesn't seem to be going anywhere either. Yeah, nothing <laughs> happened to that, so, right? No, mm -mm. I mean I've been waiting. Uh, we like to report on uh, the uh, cr you know criminal the criminal justice system for the rich and famous, mm -hmm. and oh yeah, you know, it's a whole different system. Yeah, or a non-existent system. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean you know these things affect. Um, these things called money, <laughs> they they seem to affect, you know, based on the conversations I've had with experts in, in their fields, such as yourself, it seems that way because, but, yeah, go ahead. Uh, just to get back to, I, I, you know, I think, I don't think you guys would disagree with me. I mean, the, I think the difference in terms of, you know, maybe the gay and uh, LGBTQ plus and trans rights movements versus, say, a mass decarceration movement is just the, uh, you know, structural just amount of money that is poured into the criminal justice system as it stands and and poured into the political system by private enterprises profiting off the criminal justice system is utterly massive in scale compared to those yeah, movements. Yeah, no, it's, it's a criminal and industrial and, complex. Yeah, yeah. and uh, wow. you know, something you're seeing right now uh, is group The Dream Defenders, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, uh, I accompanied them uh, a few weeks ago to the it's the Leadership Blue Gala, which is the uh, Florida Democratic Party's yearly uh, fundraising soiree. Uh, it was at the uh, it was just utterly unbearable, but it was uh, at the uh, uh, just just a lot of people. Had a good time, huh? Yeah. Uh, now I've written that in the past, so nobody's nobody'd be surprised. But uh, uh, the uh, Dream Defenders uh, showed up on the last day to propose an, uh, a a basically an ordinance uh, getting the Florida uh, Democratic Party to ban donations from private prisons at the state level. And you would think, I mean, it had absolute majority support in that room, but there was a small minority of people who were, you know... Hey, that's our money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sort of closer to the, uh, say, center of the political spectrum, quote-unquote, which, you know, in any civilized society means they're probably to the right of the actual general political spectrum. Right. Um were opposed to it, and uh, I later obtained internal emails from the, the party saying quite literally that, you know, I'm worried we're not going to have enough money if we 
to to beat Republicans if we stop taking money from Geo Group, for it. example. And and wow. that is it. the basic question. And this is, you know, guess what you were talking That's about, it. about how it crosses parties where, you know, if we have this insane system of legal bribery, you know, this is kind of how both parties are going to operate. Yeah. And uh, thank God the measure at least passed, you know, we don't see how people are going to try and finagle their way around it, but the measure passed at the Florida Democratic Party level, and then barely weeks later, the California Democratic Party followed, followed suit, and they are also going to ban donations from private prison companies. Nice. Okay. Uh, and, you know, if, you, if you're listening to this, I uh, want to reach out to the Dream Defenders to see how you can do it in your state. I highly recommend it. Yeah, um, yeah. But, I mean, uh, uh, you know, it's there is movement on the, the ground level to... Uh, change at least structurally the way these parties are funding at least one party i should say is funding itself but yeah. it's you know the most uphill of uphill battles yeah. so um, the first step in trying to reduce our prison population is probably going to be trying to get rid of these private prisons that are profiting from uh caging people up and i guess eh, the second step is i don't really think that really impacts anything you don't i i, I think that well, you, you know ma- private prisons i think are the symptom mass incarceration is the disease it's the government that makes the decision on right. caging people so then we have to pick who we vote for a little more carefully. Among other things, but I mean, part of the thing too is that, you know, one of the things that's really driven uh, the size of the prison population in this country has been the length of the sentences, pretty much. Mandatory minimums? Not just mandatory minimums, they're just across the boards. You, I mean, every year the legislature is creating dozens, if not hundreds, of new offenses. They're criminalizing mm-hmm. new behavior, mm-hmm. yeah. stuff that it wasn't even. Uh, when I started Prison Legal News in 1990, um, we started in May of 1990, the month before Washington created uh, the, this country's first system of uh, sex offender registration. So until then, there wasn't, this didn't even exist. Sex, if you were convicted of a sex offense, there was no, quote, registry. Now, on any given day, there's tens of thousands of people that are locked up in cages because they didn't comply with the bureaucratic requirement of registering for this, uh, for a registry, because 30 years ago, it didn't exist. So, you know, this is, I mean, when you start thinking about how legislatures create crimes where none exist, you know, stop creating crime. That's one good thing. Decriminalize stuff that's been criminalized and then shorten census. And and that's one of the things that on any given day right now, we've got, I think it's over 200,000 prisoners in the country that are serving sentences of life without parole. That's basically they've been sentenced to death by incarceration. Right. right. And then you've got the people that have what we call the Buck Rogers sentences. They may not formally be sentenced to life without parole, but if you're 50 years old and you get sentenced to 500 years in prison and you got to serve 80% of it, you know, we can do the math. Yeah. So, you know, and, and the thing was, uh, 30 years ago, that was very uncommon. You didn't see that many people uh, being sentenced to, uh, to exceptional sentences like that. Prisoners had actually served more than, say, 20 years in prison uh, up until, say, the 1960s. That was very, very much the exception. You know, to talk to someone that was before, say, 1980, talking to someone that actually w- actually served more than 20 years in prison. Um, you know, the atom bomb spies, Morton Sobel, he was the guy that didn't get the death penalty with Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. He did, like, 15 years in prison. Right. Um, you know, Loeb and Leopold at the time is the most sensational murder in American history. Um, you know, I think one of them got killed in prison, but the other guy got out after yeah. like 20 plus right, years. Right. You used yeah. to you see know, that. This is how this is how things have changed and all for the bad. I mean, but for centuries in American society, 
people didn't get these massive mm -hmm. sentences. We didn't criminalize right. everything. Right. And arguably, America was a safer right. place. And on the immigration side, these you know detainees that are just waiting their deportation proceedings that have not been you know sentenced to any time. Well, it's not a crime. Let's not forget. Yeah. It's not right. A crime. It's civil. It's a civil proceeding. Right. You know, I, I really advocate for alternatives to detention. You know, yeah. ICE has these programs, ADT, that are proven to be like 98% effective. These people show up to court. Yeah, um, and well, they and they're the so much dream. less expensive. That's exactly. why they're here. Exactly. When you yeah. talk about, you know, they say it's 300 and something dollars a day, some of these, you know, the cost to detain these immigrants. Right. Whereas on ADT, alternatives to det detention, it's 10 to $15 a day. I mean, it makes so much sense. It makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, to me, the, the whole immigration issue is its own program because right. it's so complex. And I, personally, I have a lot of, uh, I think a lot of Americans have a lot of feelings on this, probably both ways. But to me, I've always, you know, I, one of the things I love about Miami mm -hmm. is the cultural differences. I just, I, I really love that about this city uh, because I've lived in other places where it was super homogenous and it, it was incredibly boring. Um, <laughs> and the food was not good. But it seems to me that that the whole American concept is this: send us your, you know, your your suffering, your uh, huddled masses. Oh. Your, in principle, to be free. Yeah. in principle, yeah. but in it's not it what is. we're seeing. Well, no, it is. It's no, I know it's not what we're seeing, but it seems that th that's what I'm saying. Like for your expertise, um, I, I think there's a whole show there because, yeah, immigration is a hot topic. Just like <laughs> the, you know. Getting this prison, year, this yeah. prison population, years, yeah. you know, down. But we need we need immigration, or else uh, who's going to pay my social security when I? Uh, or who's going to pick our vegetables? That too. Well, yeah. and and not and you know immigrants do a lot more than picking vegetables and, yeah. and food and cleaning toilets. Yeah, you know, they, we have engineers. We yeah, have, of course. Know. But I'm saying really that I need those people to be here to work Absolutely. in the growth and, this country. To, uh, uh, to get to what you were saying about you know the way. Uh, you know, domestic crime, I'll put it that way, has sort of escalated and been created effectively yeah, over the yeah. last, you know, uh, it, this is the, the same thing that underpins the sort of new kind of abolish ICE movement, which is that, A, ICE didn't exist until 2003. It had, you know, a, a predecessor in INS. But then, B, uh, the number of deportable crimes was ratcheted up in 1996. Right, right. Uh, yes, and, so there yeah. have been a lot of changes yeah. in the law and yeah. offenses. I mean, the whole criminal uh, immigration mm -hmm. consequences of, of criminal activity is very complex because, mm -hmm. you know, it involves a lot of statutory comparisons and, you know, it, it differs from circuit to circuit, federal circuit to federal circuit sometimes. Um, but, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There are people that, you know, were convicted pre-1996 that are able to seek certain types of waivers and stay in this country, whereas people who were convicted later in time are not. Yeah, um, yeah there, there's relief available to people, you know, depending on when they were convicted, which yeah. is crazy. It is crazy. Yeah. Okay, you guys have been amazing. This has been a very, very cool show. I'd love to have you guys back again because uh, this is a topic that I think could be, you know, over I'd love three it. shows. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you guys are amazing. Okay, before we wrap up, uh, you know, a lot of the people involved in producing this show are, uh, have music uh, backgrounds, so we like to ask... 
what you guys are listening to musically uh, mm. this last uh, couple of weeks, this last month. Who are you listening to? On your, who's on your playlist? Who, oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I got to pull out my phone. <laughs> it's just mad. I, I'm uh, listening to all kinds of music. I mean, everything from hip-hop to, you know. Anybody in particular? Any artists in particular? I really like Kendrick Lamar. Okay. Um, I listen to nice. him a lot. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I, you know, it really depends on the day. Yeah. You know, sometimes right. I like to listen to just some really old jazz, and it just depends. All right. How about you? Kendrick Lamar. Uh, same thing. I pretty much like, I like everything across genres, everything from electronic, um, mm -hmm. yeah. you know. Anybody in particular you're listening to? Mm, I like everything from Kraftwerk to Roger Waters. Oh, wow. Nice. nice. I've seen Roger Waters in concert every time I get the chance to. He puts mm -hmm. on a, a nice. phenomenal show. Mm -hmm. I think that... It shows what artists well, pink, can do. Little Pink Floyd's. Uh, oh, I love me some yeah, Pink Floyd. Yeah. Love me some Pink Floyd. I think in terms of like a multimedia artist, if you've been yeah. to his shows, they're phenomenal. Right. And, you know, especially I think he's one of the few. Um, I think most, a lot of the shows, not all, but a lot of shows, like he'll dedicate the show to the victims of state terrorism, which I think is very unusual among major, among major artists. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I think there's... Um, you know, I think that's also one of the things, too, is I think musicians have, have historically been, um, I think, sympathetic to the issues of criminal justice reform because so many of them have run-ins. With the law. With the law. No usually, doubt. Usually revolve around drugs and alcohol. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. How about yeah. you, Jerry? You uh, I'm a big hip-hop guy. Uh, to shout out some local Florida musicians really into Denzel Curry lately. Um this musician called Princess Nokia is really cool. From um, South Florida? She's not. Uh, Denzel Curry is. But um, uh, who else? Uh, Prince is my all-time favorite musician. Yeah. Prince? So, yeah. Nice. Uh, so me some Prince. Looking forward to some yeah. of that unreleased yeah. stuff coming out. I'm actually not because it was kind of his thing to like, you know, put yes. the stuff in the vault. and Curate. Not yes. meant to. Yeah. So yes. I'm, I'm a little. Uh, he was a picky, uh, yeah. picky guy. A little upset that they're just kind of opening that up yeah, and well, dumping it all out there. That's, you but, know. <laughs> yeah someone's got to make money for the estate yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's how that how about works you? Yeah. um uh this last week i've been uh on like a lot of the latin stuff mm, been, tell me like, on tell like me a latin. no nothing necessarily new just some some mark anthony mm. uh oh, okay. and then i've also been uh I, I was grooving on the new drake album and uh mm. and then some of this uh california hip-hop this lil xan mm. i was listening to his new thing he's got some some cool like doped out Hip hop, little trashy white kids. It's kind of interesting. <laughs> tattoos on the face, the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, it's, it's it's wild. We've got some great local bands as well. <laughs> yeah, Miami's got a ton of talent. We got a lot yeah. of talent coming out of here. Yeah. All right, for Felony Miami team and all our producers and our staff and our fans, I'm your host Joe Stone. Don't forget to check us out online at felonymiami.com. Check out the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, your favorite RSS feeds. If you'd like to make some comments, email us. Hit the phone number at the bottom of the website. Leave a voicemail. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Yeah. <laughs>